good to see you guys this morning. Uh, my name's Tony. Uh, I'm the pastor here. I have the privilege of serving here. Uh, glad to have you this morning. If you're new or visiting Wellspring, we're happy to have you. Uh, if this is your first Sunday where the doors have been drawn back, we have some seats over here. Feel free. Trying to make a little more seating in this place. If you are an elementary school student and you want to hang out with some other elementary school students, Miss Trish and Miss Jeannie are over here. If you're in middle school or high school and you're wondering, hey, where are the middle schoolers and high schoolers? Uh, are Aaron and Claire in here? Maybe Aaron and Claire can stand up. If you're in middle school and high school and you're wondering, how do you connect with our middle schooler and high schoolers? Talk to Aaron and Claire. They meet every Sunday at nine before church. Uh, and maybe talk to some of the other middle schoolers and high schoolers. I'm, I'm hearing good reports. It sounds like it's been an awesome, awesome experience. Uh, so if you're just joining us, we're in the Gospel of John. Uh, we're in the 10th teth- tenth chapter. But one of the things that's interesting about chapter 10 is, oddly enough, in the middle of chapter 10, you have this, like, little bit of a break. So in, since chapter 7, basically, we've been in the fall, in the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's this annual pilgrimage feast, and a lot of 7 through 10 takes place uh, in the shadow of tabernacles. Today, we enter the Feast of Dedication. Now, for those of you who've grown up on the West Coast and don't have a Jewish background, you might know it as Hanukkah. So today, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem in the winter to celebrate Hanukkah. Now, there are, what one thinks is interesting is, right, so this is basically an 84-mile journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Three times a year, there's basic uh, pilgrimage festivals that everyone does, right? This is Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Uh, Hanukkah isn't one of those. So Jesus makes a special journey to celebrate Hanukkah in Jerusalem. Now, if you're not familiar with the history of Hanukkah, let me set the stage a bit. So linguistically, Hanukkah means renewal. Uh, Historically, uh, maybe we'll start at the beginning, God creates all things. Humans sort of go their own way. Even though God tries to form the people of Israel, they end up in exile. By the 5th century, there's this guy named Nehemiah. He comes back. They start to come back to Israel. Here's a little map. Give you like, I don't know. It's, sorry, we're, our projection is a little smaller. We, we had to change something around. We'll get it worked out if you can't see it. But the basic idea is uh, you have Abraham, Moses, David, right? And then about 500, a lot of the Jewish people start returning back to the land of Israel. But then... This is where our Old Testament ends with Malachi, Nehemiah, and then it picks up in the first century or in the the first century AD with the New Testament. So there's this gap. Uh, Historians call it an intertestamental period, right? So there's a few hundred years in there that aren't recorded in the Protestant Bibles. Catholic Bibles have some interesting books. The Apocrypha, we can't get into it. One of them is Maccabees, which sheds light on Hanukkah. So it's the second century. Uh, you know, the Nehemiah comes back, they form the temple, it's awesome, they rebuild the wall, but it's not all rosy for the next 500 years. Uh, there's a Greek empire, uh, the Seleucids end up ruling over Israel, and they're wanting to make one religion in the entirety of their empire. So they go to Israel and they say, you guys can't keep doing this Torah law thing uh, and guess what? In your temple, we're going to set up a, uh, uh, I don't know, a statue of Zeus. And you're going to have to worship him. Now, there's this guy named Judas Maccabeus, and he leads this revolt. And they win. 
And they end up cleansing the temple, making it another place, a place again where Yahweh is worshipped, and they establish this 100-year dynasty. That spot, when they flip the temple, you know, kick out Zeus and renew the temple, renewal, Hanukkah, is what is remembered every year from that date to the first century when Jesus is on the scene celebrating Hanukkah in Jerusalem. So this is what we learn in chapter 10, verses 22 to 24. It says this, Then came the festival of dedication, Hanukkah, at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. And the Jews who were gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. All right, so remember it's Hanukkah. They're thinking about kings and how kings are made. They're thinking about Judas Maccabeus, and they're like, awesome, you know, he kicked off the yoke of the Seleucids. When is the Messiah going to come back? When is the king going to come back and establish his forever kingdom? Not just a hundred-year dynasty, but a kingdom that lasts forever. And they're asking Jesus, in this sort of time when they're wondering about kings and how kings are made, are you him? Are you the king? Are you the Messiah. Jesus replies in verse 25 to 27 this way. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They will follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus is like, how many times do I need to tell you guys? Right? We had just talked about him and the shepherd and the sheep, and he's, he thinks he's being pretty clear, I guess. Uh, they disagree. Uh, and then he says, but look at the works. Right? So up until chapter 10, Jesus has done six primary signs in the gospel. Uh, if you go back to chapter 2, right, he turns water into wine. Chapter 4, he heals an official son. Chapter 5, he hears a, heals a paralytic at the pool, the pool of Bethesda. Uh, chapter 6, he feeds 5,000. Chapter 6, he also walks on water. Uh, he also heals a man born blind in chapter 9. And then the last miracle or the last sign that he does will be the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And that will be next chapter. It'll be next week. We'll start into it. And Jesus is like, hey, I've done all this and you still don't believe. Now in verses 20, 26, and 27, he kind of repeats himself a little bit. He goes back to what he just talked about last week about the shepherd and the sheep. And he sort of plays off of Near Eastern shepherding practices, right? So the shepherd comes to the fold and he calls out the sheep by name. They hear his voice and they follow him, right? And then he leads them out, right? This isn't Ireland. There's not like a hundred acre pasture where they can eat whatever they want. He leads them out into the wild places and he guides them and brings them back. And there's this intimate knowledge between the shepherd and the sheep. Jesus says, hey, if you follow me, if you trust me, if you hear my voice, right? And this is 28 through 30. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. 
No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, to those hearing Jesus, right, to him, hearing him call, he promises eternal life, participation in an eternal kingdom, right? The Maccabees, their dynasty lasted 100 years. Jesus is saying, hey, you will get eternal life, participation in this eternal kingdom that will not end. Right? He's saying that those who come to him, who follow him, who trust in him, will experience eternal life in this eternal kingdom. Now, Jesus doesn't get super into the details here, but what we do know is that he's not saying that they will not physically die, right? Jesus actually himself will physically die on a cross, but then he will be resurrected by the power of God. And what he is saying is, hey, he's not saying you guys will not physically die, but what he is saying is even if you die, the resurrection of power of God will bring you to life so that you can participate in this forever kingdom. In chapter 14, he says this to his disciples, which I think helps a little bit. He says this, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Right? So Jesus is using this house analogy to explain the kingdom. He's saying, hey, I am going to die, right? I'm going to leave you. I am going to be crucified on a cross. I am going to be resurrected, ascend to the right hand of the Father, send the Spirit to be with you. And if you die, that's okay. Because one day I am going to come in my kingdom and I will bring the dead to life. So whether you're walking the streets or whether you've been down 10 years or 10,000 years, Jesus will bring the dead to life to participate in this kingdom. We're in chapter 10 now, but what we'll see is in chapter 11, Jesus actually raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, right? He actually does in life what he says he is capable of doing uh, to his disciples in chapter 10, right? He says, I will give you eternal life. You will not perish. And then what does he do? The next thing he do, he illustrates his power to do this very thing. And then he says this pretty profound comment. He actually repeats it twice. He says, no one will snatch you out of my hand. I offer you this promise, and guess what? They can't take you out of my hand. Death or life, nothing in all creation can take you out of my hand or out of the Father's hand. Right? Jesus is the power of God in human flesh, and he will not let that happen. Right? What we see is this is important, right? Because what do we see in chapter 9? The synagogue, right, the local leaders have, have, have uh, adopted a policy of exclusion, right? Anyone who's following Jesus, what's going to happen? They're going to be excluded from the synagogue. And Jesus is like, they may kick you out of the synagogue, but I will never let you go. And then he ends with a twofold emphasis on the greatness of God and his unity with the Father, both of which emphasize his ability to carry out Right, what he has said, that he will actually is capable of offering eternal life, and two, right, that he is capable of protecting those who might try and snatch them out of his hand. He's saying he's not just a good teacher, right, that he is the king who's coming, the one they are looking forward to as they celebrate Hanukkah. Right, but not everyone's celebrating Hanukkah. Right, as Jesus says these things in verses 31 to 33, This is what it says, right? Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. 
But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Which of these do you stone? Do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Right? They're picking up stones. He's saying, hey, I offer eternal life. Right? Then they pick up stones. This isn't the first time they've done some stone picking up. Right? At the end of chapter 8, he says, before Abraham, I am. You know, Abraham was, I am. They pick up stones and he escaped. The same thing happens here. But this time, Jesus doesn't just sneak away, right? He actually says something. This gets a little tricky, so just bear with me a second. Uh, it might be a little confusing, but I think we can sort of lean into it. This is what Jesus says. Jesus answers them. Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father." Now, a lot of this, I think, sounds familiar if you've been in John, but this phrase about gods in this argument uh, can feel a little like when you first read it, you're like, what is he talking about? So this is a quote. That's a reference to Psalm 82, 6. This is how it reads. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere men, and you will fall like any prince. And you're like, that does not help me. Okay. So in the first century, there was this belief among the leaders that uh, when the Torah was given, when the law was given, it was this like unbelievable thing that almost raised these mortals up to like a godlike status. It was like, what? You gave us the law? We're like superheroes on this planet, right? So they're thinking when the law was given, they almost become like gods among mortals because they have been given this sacred trust. And then there's this corollary belief that if they could live into this law and fulfill it, they would never die. Right? Psalm 82, right? You were really gods. You were almost gods. But now you will die. Why will they die? They didn't fulfill the law. Right? And you see this even immediately. Aaron is making a golden calf at the base of the mountain, like simultaneous to the giving of the law. They're building a golden calf, right? And we know the rest. This is where it gets really interesting. This is sort of the twist of Jesus' argument. He's like, if you were going to tell these guys that they could be gods and they could even live forever if they fulfilled the law, guess what? Look at the works I am doing. I am the one fulfilling the law. I am the one doing the things that God asked you to do. And therefore, I am the one who can give eternal life. Isn't it odd that you would say these people are gods and yet the Son of God has taken on human flesh, is living into the law. How much more so should I be called God? Which is even more interesting, right? Is he uses this language of consecration and set apart, which then loops back in to Hanukkah, right? What do they do at Hanukkah? Right? They consecrate the temple and they make it ready for worship. 
That's what they're doing. They're kicking out Zeus and making the temple consecrated and ready for God. And Jesus says, the Father has consecrated me and sent me into the world. And what do we see, right? That Jesus then becomes the medium of worship and connection to the Father. Beasley Murray. The application of the term consecrated, set apart, in the context of the festival of commemorating the dedication or consecration of the temple is highly significant. It suggests that the meaning of the festival of dedication, like that of tabernacles and Passover, finds its ultimate fulfillment in the mission of Jesus. Right? Just as the temple is set apart for God so that the people can worship God, so Jesus right, is sent into the world to embody the kingdom of God, to fulfill the law, right? to bring eternal life so that they can participate in an eternal kingdom that God is going to bring. Now the crowd, right, with stones in hand, tries to seize him, but Jesus escapes their grasp. Verses 39 to 42. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him, and they said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus, right? So you have the contrast. You have this contrast between these people celebrating Hanukkah that are picking up stones to stone him. Jesus crosses over the Jordan and they're like, whoa, you're the one we have been waiting for. So a few interesting, uh, I think, things to note here. One is that Jesus consistently like evades the grasp of the authorities. You notice this? It's like the other chapter, he sneaks into the temple. Here, he like sneaks away. He's constantly doing this, which actually I think is not coincidental in this text. What does Jesus say twice? Right, those who hear the Father's voice, they will never be snatched out of the Father's hand or Jesus' hand. And I think what we're seeing actually in the narrative is that lived out. That until Jesus' time comes, the Father is not going to let them get Jesus. And then what does he do, right? He crosses over to the Jordan. Now, if you don't know uh, Jewish geography or the land of Israel super well, uh, it's a map. So you'll see you have the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The Jordan River runs basically north-south, dividing Israel. Jerusalem is on the, the western side. So basically, he's crossing over the Jordan onto the eastern side where the baptisms have mostly been happening. There's less adversaries over there. Now, if you weren't with us at the beginning when we started John in May, right, chapter one highlights John the Baptist, right? He is the one who is sent to testify to the light, Jesus, the one who brings light into darkness. He encounters Jesus one day in the Jordan, and this is what he says. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Right? And then by chapter 4, John the Baptist fades out of the picture and Jesus' disciples are baptizing more people than he is. But what's clear is that Jesus returns to a region where there is expectation. There's a sense of excitement. There's a sense of like, John said these things, now you're doing them. They see the works of the Father. They hear the voice of the shepherd in ways that the people in Jerusalem don't. Now the question is then, how does this translate, right? So we're gathered in the 21st century on the peninsula, uh, on the West Coast, in a Western world. Like, how does this text written 2,000 years ago translate into our life today? There's two things I want to emphasize. There's a lot we could go into. 
Uh, but there's two things I want to highlight. The first is about future hope. One of the things we see from the beginning of John through now is this emphasis on life and eternal life specifically. In chapter 5, 8, and 10, Jesus says very clearly that he is the means to eternal life. Now, if you've grown up in church, maybe you have images of like clouds and gates. And if you're into Renaissance art, maybe like chubby little cherubs strumming guitars. Uh, I just want to say like, that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about. The scriptures talk about a day when God will come back to earth and he will rid all of creation of evil and injustice and wrong and suffering and pain. An analogy I think is helpful is imagine like God has this massive magnet and this magnet sucks all those things that we hate and we see around the world that we feel like are wrong. God sucks it out. And then he establishes like a, a camp on earth. And he sends out this invite, right? This is the voice of the shepherd calling. He says, come to the party. Now, Jesus says that those who trust him will hear his voice and they will follow him. And what Jesus is saying when he's saying, I offer you eternal life is participation in this eternal party. It's not a dance in the clouds. It's not little cherubs strumming guitars, you know, and there's not pearly gates. There's a party on earth where God has made his home and he's inviting us to be with him. But it signals, right, that physical death is not the end. And yet, in our culture, there's this ton of pressure, I think, to live for today. And this is especially true, I think, in the West, and it's especially true in affluent places, I think, like where we live. Right? There's this press towards YOLO, right? You only live once, so you better rock it. One of the things, right, when Jesus is talking to these people in the streets of Jerusalem in the first century, most people don't live very long, and most people don't get to live the life they dreamed. Right? We imagine sort of living the good life or YOLO, you only live once. Like we imagine things like traveling, spacious homes, financial safety nets, retirement, right? Let alone other basic stuff like vacations, medical insurance, educational opportunities. Yeah, pretty much all of those things are off the table to the audience Jesus is talking to in the first century. Right, so when Jesus promises them eternal life, participation in this kingdom that isn't just defined by their opportunities on earth, I think they're pretty excited. I think they're pretty excited, and I think it's one of the reasons, one of the hopes that they have that allows them to endure, right, getting kicked out of the synagogue. It's one of the reasons they're able to endure the persecutions that become horrendous over the next hundred years. Because there is a hope that they can cling to that is not defined by their socioeconomic status, that is not defined by the opportunities that they get to enjoy around them. Right? They have this hope that they will get to spend eternity with God. Now, I share this because if you have been with us on John, you will see that Jesus is constantly talking about eternal life. He is constantly talking about life. And I think when we start putting sort of this future hope on the back burner of our spiritual lives, we actually lose touch with the message that Jesus shared and the hope that he offered. 
I also think that when we lose touch with eternal life, when we lose touch with this forever kingdom, we lose touch with hope, a gritty, a tough, a persevering hope that Jesus offers. And we end up settling for lesser hopes. We end up settling for, I hope I have enough money in my bank account. I hope people like me. I was on a plane earlier this week, uh, flying back from the Midwest. And I was, there was this woman sitting next to me and we were just chatting. And so I got to know her a little bit. You know, she's a single mom, lives up in Fremont, three kids. Uh, she works the day out in Livermore, uh, works full-time there. And then at night, in order to make ends meet, right, she goes to the Tesla plant and she works shifts at night. And we were talking and she had bought this book on TV. It was something like how to be a millionaire, how to make your first million or something. And this is how she described it. She said, you know what? Like I'm reading this book because I am sinking. And I realized in that moment, this was her hope. That this book would give her what she needed in order to navigate life. She was grasping for a straw. And as I sat with her more and more, I just realized how stuck her life was. She's just sitting there weeping. And I realized in that moment, there was no book I could recommend her that would change her situation. She needed the coming king. She needed the good shepherd. And not just sort of in a spiritual way today, but she needed the coming kingdom to come. She needed that magnet to suck all those things that were trapping her and oppressing her and keeping her stuck. She needed that future hope. She needed the kingdom to come to rescue her. And as I thought about it, I realized how much we need that as well. How easy it is to settle for lesser hopes. The problem with these lesser hopes is they have no resilience. One of the things we can sort of embrace YOLO or sort of focusing on today is because we live in one of the most affluent countries in the world in a fairly affluent place. The problem with YOLO hope is that it has no resilience. All right, as soon as a depression hits, as soon as the stock market crashes, that is not a hope that endures. The hope Jesus offers is a hope that endures through every calamity, through every civil war, through every difficult time, through every anxiety attack and season of depression. The hope Jesus offers is not defined by what we see in front of us, but a coming kingdom that offers hope to the world. And as people that I think are trying to be apprentices of Jesus, how do we take seriously that future hope? Or how do we allow it to inform our present, not simply be something that will happen in the future, but something that we look forward to that saturates and marinates sort of our hope and our life? I was trying to think about it, right? Because Jesus is constantly talking about this future hope and eternal life. What do we do with that? He says in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And I just wonder, what if we took a little time this week and just said that? It took five minutes and just said to Jesus, you give me eternal life. I will never perish. God, help me to understand what that means, not for tomorrow, but for right this moment. 
that I may have a hope that endures. And maybe you do it as a breath prayer, just sort of one of those prayers where you're like, breathe in, you know, and then you breathe out that I may never perish. Or maybe you collage it, or maybe you do some sort of art, or maybe you just sit there in silence. But I just wonder, what does it look like for us as apprentices of Jesus, trying to hold tight to the hope that he offers, a hope of eternal life, a hope of kingdom participation? What does it look like for us to live lives that are shaped by that future? Which brings me to the second point, which is a relational core. Now, throughout the gospel, Jesus talks about life and eternal life. But he also focuses on this connection between the Father and the Son. Right? Even in this text, what do we see? The Father consecrates, sets apart Jesus and sends him into the world. What does the Son do? Right? The Son does what the Father says and says what the Father says, right? There is this unity of mission and purpose, and what we'll see in a chapter or two, right, is that the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is a part of this relational core of the universe that calls us, right? Jesus says in this text, right, he calls out to us. The Father calls out to us, and he invites us into this relationship with the Trinity, I think sometimes we think, oh, Jesus is God. Jesus is God, you know, he and the Father are one. And then we sort of assume that he is distant. But that's not what the text says. Sex is that he invites us, the relational core of the universe, the Trinity invites us into relationship with itself, right? And then calls us to participate in this eternal kingdom with him. Now, I thought about this a little bit in the context of Jesus' words about never letting us go. Because as I meet with people, I just get this sense that most people I meet with, maybe you don't relate, but most people I do meet with, have this sense that the burden of their spiritual life rests on their shoulders. They feel guilt when they feel like they stink at it. Uh, They feel arrogant, you know, when they're like rocking it. Maybe a bit of shame if there's things you've done that you regret doing. And I think this text speaks into that reality a little bit. See, God is not a distant God. God is three in one, a relationship calling us to himself. And what does he say? Right, the relational core of the universe calls us to himself, that we may be in relationship with him. And he says, when we respond to him, what does he say? He will never let us go. When we hear him, he holds on to us when we respond to him. I think as I was thinking about this text for you this morning, for us this morning, I just wanted to say, God has you this morning. That you are actually not the center of your spiritual life. God is. He invites you to be safe in him. He invites you to let go into his arms. Hear the words of Paul to the Romans. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
No one can snatch you out of my hand, Jesus says to you. Right? There is no greater power on earth. Jesus is God and he says, when you hear my voice, when you come to me, that no one can snatch you out of my hand. That you are not the center of your spiritual life. God is and he is going to hold tight to you. Let go into his arms. Eugene Peterson in the message says this, Matthew eleven thirty, Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and gently. One of those unforced rhythms is the practice of communion. It also happens to be one of the more profound ways that we see the love and faithfulness and perseverance of God at play in life. Jesus didn't sit back on the sideline. He entered into human flesh. And then when time came, right, he sacrificed all of who he was to save and rescue us. That no one would snatch us out of the Father's hand. On the night he was betrayed, he was meeting with his disciples. They were having dinner. And he grabbed a piece of bread. And he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body. Which will be broken for you. Take it and eat it. And he grabbed a glass or a pitcher or a bottle of wine. And he said, this Wine is my blood. It's a sign of the new and everlasting covenant that will be shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Jesus offered himself as the good shepherd that we may experience eternal life with him. Right? And communion then becomes a symbol, an expression of the party to come. And we will be with Jesus in fullness. Living in the love of the Trinity with one another, with the sin of the world pulled out of it. And this morning as we come to celebrate communion, I just invite you to receive again the forgiveness and the grace of God that fights for you. That we are invited into a rhythm of unforced grace where God works in us and among us to bring us life.